you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Previously on Norco 80. When we talk about the arming of police in America, it starts here. It starts with the narco bank robbery. We're in Lido Creek, and, and uh, what we're trying to do is hit the engines on the police vehicles to stop them. I wasn't trying to kill them. He took a round in the right eye, uh, which basically killed him instantly. He sent many memos to the sheriff that last year before he died. He told them, we need military assault rifles. It's almost like he could see it coming. He'd tell me, something big is going to happen. We have been telling the story of a bank robbery that happened in 1980, over 40 years ago. In a previous episode, we talked about how the response to the robbery was part of a national moment where police began demanding more powerful weapons. But there is another, very specific way that what happened in Norco years ago has shaped policing today. And part of it has to do with a video. Deputy Sheriff Rolf Parks was one of the officers in the chase the day of the robbery. My dispatch asks, uh, can you confirm if a helicopter is being shot out of the sky? And I go, what? <laughs> I go, are you kidding me? Shortly after the events of Norco, he started a new job at the Irvine Police Department. And there, he would get a unique first assignment. The captain of patrol the first thing he said to me, he says, I, I want you to do something for training regarding this thing. They wanted him to make a video. And so for the next two years, Rolf essentially became a movie producer. From that moment on, things built from me just doing some hand drawings and, uh, and a little narrative to making it into a, a training film. Rolf gathered evidence from the investigation and the radio traffic from that day. And then I had... Uh, a guy from uh, Disneyland, the, the voice of Disneyland, Jack Wagner, narrated the thing. On May 9, 1980, one of the most daring and spectacular bank robberies to occur in the United States took place here. How did you get him? Somebody knew somebody. <laughs> Who scored it? So he chose the music. Within minutes after the robbery took place, countless units from the Riverside Sheriff's Department, Corona Police Department, descend on the scene. I wanted people to sit in the car with me that day and get a feeling for what it's like to chase bank robbers who are trying to kill you, you know? The air traffic was very crowded with several units trying to talk at once. The movie was made into a VHS tape that was distributed to police departments to be viewed during training. It was a way for agencies to digest this stuff and then come up with ways on their own should they face something like this themselves. For Rolf, the video ended up being more than a reference for agencies. It was a warning. 
I want people to understand why there was and is an arming of police in America and why we have to have these kind of resources. And we have to have a police force well-armed, prepared, and trained in order to answer that threat. The video was a message that society could collapse if the police didn't prepare for the worst. Otherwise, we're going to have havoc. You know, it's like the bad guys will run the world. I'm Antonia Cerejido, and from LAS Studios and Futuro Studios, this is Norco 80, a series about God, guns, survivalism, and the bank robbery that changed policing forever. Forty years later, the story of the Norco bank robbery reveals how a militarized mindset has infiltrated part of American society and what that means in the context of the tense conversations we are having around policing today. Chapter 8, Danger Signs. In review of the narco bank robbery, several key training points and considerations should be addressed. The video detailing the narco bank robbery would end up being 54 minutes long. It's a cinematic account of the robbery. It includes maps and sketches of the robbers and the cops during the car chase and the shootout. The San Bernardino National Forest through an area known as Lytle Creek. The pursuit had already covered some 35 miles from the Security Pacific Bank in Norco to this position in about 42 minutes. Deputy Parks and Chisholm's unit is disabled by bullets striking the radiator. Ralph Parks says that making the video helped him process the event. For me, making the film was kind of cathartic, if you would. I I was able to put a lot of thoughts down on paper and then into film, you know, to help me personally deal with that. And I, I think that's what got me through it, was doing that. But the video would bring up nightmares for Deputy DJ McCarty, the officer who saw Jim Evans die. Years after the robbery, he was transferred to a new job, but he couldn't escape what happened at Lytle Creek. We are being trained by the FBI in Point Magoon Naval Station. They come in and say, hey, we've got this movie that of a shooting we want you guys to see. And it was the Lytle Creek bank robbery movie. And I'd never seen it. And I went, oh, God. And then, hey, yeah, that DJ was in that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? And so they put it on, turn the lights off, and they put it on. Lights come back on. And one of the guys noticed that I had tears in my eyes. So my sergeant gets a hold of me a couple days later. He goes, hey, DJ, we got a problem. I go, what's that, Sergeant? He goes, one of the guys noticed that you were having a reaction to that shooting, and they're a little nervous what you're going to do when uh, the, the boats start flying again. DJ tried to assure the sergeant that he could handle it. Yeah, well, okay, but we're going to send you to shrink anyway. DJ would end up going to go see Nancy Bull Penrod. Back then, Nancy was just starting her career as a therapist. She's now the director of the Counseling Team International, which works with first responders and police officers. Nancy remembers how in the 80s, officers were not very enthused to talk to her. Sometimes I would hand them my business card and they literally right in front of me would throw it in the trash. Nancy remembers that DJ was also skeptical of therapy. She could tell that he was putting up a front that he was okay. When I first met DJ, my first thought was that he was pretty macho. Her goal was to help police process traumatic events. 
but also to keep them from dropping out of the force altogether. Everyone thought DJ would leave. Everybody. I mean, people never thought DJ McCarty would stay a deputy. To treat DJ, Nancy had them rewatch Rolf Park's training video together. As the suspects continue to fire, deputies McCarty and McFerrin, who have the M16 rifle, are around the corner. So we do a frame by frame. And as he tells the story, you stop him. And what were you thinking at the time? What were you feeling? What's your reaction? As she worked with him, to DJ's surprise, he started to feel better. It made you feel that you weren't crazy. It made you feel that you were human. Nancy says in the decades after the robbery, more officers felt comfortable going to her for help. At the same time, there was another shift happening within the police force. SWAT teams were becoming more ubiquitous. Between the mid-1980s and the late 1990s, the number of police departments in the U.S. with SWAT-style teams more than doubled. And so more officers adopted their military look and training. They're using full body armor, which is very difficult to work around. Bicep protection, groin protection, shoulder protection. I'm willing to put my life on the line every time and put that tactical uniform and vest and helmet on to go after someone that's caused havoc and harm in the community. But this interest in acquiring more powerful weaponry wasn't just limited to the police force. It was reflected across the greater U.S. culture. In the late 70s, the NRA became a political force advocating for gun rights. Having firearms had become an identity in and of itself. And these people in regard to the gun issue are pretty much a one-issue voter. American gun makers produced and imported 8.5 million assault-style rifles between 1990 and 2012. And as military-style guns became more common in the streets and in the hands of police officers, Nancy Ball Penrod, DJ's therapist, saw more and more officers involved in shootings. The first year I, I started working, I think I went out on four incidents. Then the next year it was like nine, and then it was 15, and then it was 48, and then 100, and then, you know, 105. As that increased, the community started to question their training and started questioning, you know, was that justified? Was it justified? And there was a portion of the public that would always back them up. And there was a portion that didn't. She noticed a new tension around policing, one that should be very familiar to most people today a fierce debate over whether police officers are justified in their use of force. A division found in communities across the U.S. today, including at Riverside, the county where the Norco bank robbery happened. How much of the county's budget, general and special, goes to law enforcement? It goes at the expense of people of color, Black people, and poor people, and it needs to be addressed. When we return, Riverside residents speak out. (laughs) 
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. We're back. I'd like to call this meeting to order at 5.32 now. This is audio from a public listening session, one of several held in Riverside County this past fall, the same county where the Norco bank robbery happened just 40 years ago. A few people were in the room, but mostly, one by one, community members were calling in on the phone. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. You got three minutes. Okay. They discussed the pandemic and economic issues. But it was clear that the majority of people's concerns were over policing in Riverside County. We talk about the vigil that was held for Breonna Taylor last week. And we had a police presence that was uh, very unreasonable. Riot gear, you know, we had drones overhead that were very loud. Ultimately, very disrespectful for the reason that we were there. The comments were like ping pong. Residents raised concerns. Other residents flung back retorts. What is being alleged by people that are reading pre-written out scripts and trying to just regurgitate a narrative that's been spread across the country is ridiculous. We have one of the finest sheriff's departments in, in the country. The Riverside County Sheriff's Office and the Riverside Police Department were two of the primary agencies that responded to the Norco robbery. They now rank as some of the worst in California in terms of police violence, according to advocacy organization Campaign Zero. That's based on the use of deadly force and civilian complaints. I've witnessed the sheriffs harass homeless people instead of help them. Like they're overfunded and do nothing but install fear in people when they're around. A helicopter was flying over us. Now let's think, how much money does that cost the county to get all this military equipment and the helicopter out? Is that what we deserve? Is that what Black people deserve? The very thing officers fought for, military-grade weapons, is now part of what many Riverside citizens see as the problem. When people hear the term militarization of the police, it can bring to mind images like those coming out of Ferguson, Missouri, after the killing of Michael Brown. For several nights this week, this was Ferguson, Missouri. Tanks, combat gear, assault rifles. It looked like a military operation. Much of the public thinks of SWAT teams responding to drug infractions, drones at vigils the police coming fully armed to deliver no-knock warrants. Police departments in the St. Louis area, like those across the country, are arming their officers with equipment once on the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan. 
Police departments today have access to equipment that to many seems like overkill, like grenade launchers and mine-resistant armored vehicles. Researchers point out that the data of these programs is incomplete, and so it's difficult to measure their impact. But if you talk to police, as we have been doing a lot, they have a different perspective. When they think of militarization, they think of needing to respond to events like the Norco bank robbery or the San Bernardino mass shooting in 2015, which happened in the county just next door to Riverside. We were on the ground watching SWAT teams race back and forth across the city all after. A husband and wife shot and killed 14 people and injured 22 others. And the police stopped the suspects by killing them using military-level equipment. Police sent a robot into the home to sweep for possible explosives. Farouk and Malik were killed after a police pursuit that ended in a shootout. The police we spoke to believe it's vital that officers be prepared for the most extreme situations. A mindset that starts before officers even get out into the field. A fear rooted in their training. We'll be right back. Earlier this month, Rose Cerna received a letter in the mail. Your tenancy is being terminated by reason of the fact The that journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist senior housing reporter David Wagner. I help Southern Californians, including renters and landlords, navigate the region's affordable housing crisis. And I help you stay on top of the ever-changing renter protections and housing policies. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. We're back. The training video that Deputy Sheriff Rolf Parks produced was not just a relic of the 80s. It's still viewed by police today on YouTube rather than on VHS tape. When I was at the police academy, certainly that bank robbery looms very large in in sort of police legend. This is Rosa Brooks. She's a professor at Georgetown University. She's a scholar of war and the use of violence. In 2015, she did something unexpected for a full-time professor. She started training to be a police officer. I was just really, really curious. She had spent so much time thinking about the relationship between violence and justice from the outside of enforcement. She wanted to get a more accurate picture. I just wanted to find out, you know, so what is it like? You know, what do cops learn about? How do they get trained? What, you know, what do they talk about when... The rest of us aren't there. (laughs) Um, So I guess it was just curiosity more than anything else. Rosa was on the force for four years as a reserve police officer in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that she picked up on was how policing can be a really tough job. You've got a big scary guy with a poker and you've got to intervene. And doing all of these things at once, the teenager who's having a fight with a parent, you know, that, that... The range of things that we expect cops to do and do well is pretty mind-boggling. 
But another thing that she picked up on right after she began her training was that through instances like watching the Norco 80 bank robbery training video, officers were being sent a very clear message about their relationship to society. Everyone is trying to kill us. Any routine interaction could turn deadly for me at any time. The most important thing is that I be safe. In fact, there was a whole genre of police videos dedicated to looking back at moments like the Norco bank robbery. I talk about the incredible amount of time that went into watching these quote-unquote officer safety videos where you watched officers getting hurt or killed um, or attacked, um, and then they'd be analyzed for, well, what, you know, what could this officer have done differently to prevent that from happening? Hi, I'm Dave Smith for Police One, and this is Roll Call Reality Training. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands right now. You don't have to plan specifically for the actual situation you're going to be in, but you watching this prepares you to win in whatever crisis you're going to be in. I think I've been shot in the fucking head. Yeah, I'm bleeding. I got a fucking bullet in my head. Now it's up to you to learn, to get better, and prepare. Meanwhile, much of the rest of America was seeing a very different kind of video about the police force. We begin tonight with that chilling piece of video live streamed on Facebook in the moments after a man is shot by police. Stay with me. We're going to play for you now the video of the Alton Sterling shooting. Just last week, the officer who shot and killed Philando Castile was acquitted adding more outrage to the already fraught relationship between the police and the black community. But these instances were not discussed in Rosa's training classes. They focused on other aspects of the job. It was essentially tactical. You know, it was, okay, you need to memorize this list of vehicular offenses and you need to learn the nine property forms you must fill out for different types of property that comes into police possession. And you need to do push-ups, and you need to shine your boots. But You don't need to be contemplating what it would mean to say that there is structural racism in American policing. Black men in the U.S. are more than two times more likely to be killed by American cops than white men. Overall, when you adjust for population size, police in the United States kill people at 64 times the rate of police in the United Kingdom. So Rosa was surprised that her trainings had no mention of statistics about crime and arrest patterns, especially since she was working as a police officer in 2016 in the midst of the highly publicized killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. It wasn't talked about at all. Um, So race came up only in the context of, you know, we as a police department are committed to treating everybody equally. And it is a hate crime to have, you know, an assault or something be motivated by, in part, racial animus or animus based on religion or ethnicity or gender or whatever long, you know, long list of, of categories. So we got that. That was about it. You know, so, so we learned about race only to be told that within the police department, it didn't matter because we're all blue now. They would say that you're all blue now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you bleed blue. I don't care if you're black or white, you bleed blue. These videos, the Norco training video and the other ones on YouTube, they're one way of solidifying a kind of bond between officers. That they are out there together facing danger against an enemy. 
Officers were eager to share their experience of the robbery and chase, telling me that the public doesn't understand how dangerous their job is. The thing is, police work is dangerous. But it is less dangerous to be a police officer than many other professions. It's more dangerous to be a logger or a roofer or a sanitation truck uh, worker than it is to be a cop. Now, granted, people aren't shooting at roofers and loggers and garbage truck guys. But even if you look at uh, risk in terms of intentional harm, Taxi drivers, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers have almost twice the rate of on-the-job deaths by homicide than police officers do. The perception of danger, the perception of risk that cops have is disproportionate to the actual risk. Which is not to say that events like the Norco shootout are not deeply terrifying and traumatic. But there is a consequence when officers are taught to worry that every scenario is potentially deadly. Inevitably, that means that some police officers are going to see somebody reaching into their pocket or into their glove compartment, and they're going to freak out and they're going to shoot somebody who did not pose a threat. The rhetoric becomes our lives are the most important ones to preserve. And that, too, I think, you know, coupled with other aspects of police training and police culture can lead, in a sense, to kind of transferring risk onto ordinary people and away from the police. And by and large, the people who have suffered the brunt of this have been Black and brown communities. The Norco bank robbery was not attempted by Black men, but by contributing to militarization, it did shape how Black men and communities of color are policed. Given the disproportionate number of Black and brown people who are shot by police every year, It's hard not to notice that even in the Norco robbery, the two robbers who lost their lives happened to be the two Mexican-American men who were part of the group. Ultimately, we don't know what could have happened to change the outcome of the Norco robbery. If the police had been armed with more powerful weaponry, there could have been fewer deaths. Or there could have been more. We are living through a moment of intense anxiety in American history. The public is concerned about police use of lethal force. And there's also a concern about how easy it is for anybody, including extremist groups, to purchase very powerful weapons. A number of the insurrectionists who were at the Capitol in January are also self-proclaimed preppers, survivalists like George Smith and the other robbers. Today, doomsday preppers are not just at the fringes of society. They've also become a sort of pop culture phenomenon. There are multiple reality shows dedicated to presenting the lives of survivalists. I'm prepping to protect my family from global chaos brought on by hyperinflation. If things go bad and the economy tanks, we're ready for it. It's not going to be a surprise. We're not going to sit around like millions of Americans wondering what happened or how it happened. We're simply going to spring into action and survive. The majority of the preppers on these shows are middle-aged white men. And you get the sense that they are prepping for their fantasy rather than their fears. A return to a world where certain behaviors that have been traditionally linked to masculinity, like building and hunting, would put them at the top of the food chain, so to speak. 
skills that are not really needed in our industrialized world today. In the case of Norco, George Smith's survivalism, his quest to feel powerful and prepare against disaster, actually brought disaster upon his life, his friends, and his family, as well as the family of Jim Evans. George's daughter, Monica Miller, recalls a lifetime of having to be her dad's support system, waiting for hours in line as a child to visit him after he was incarcerated, and paying for the prison's expensive food and other items, a situation she didn't choose. For every 50 people visiting prison on a given day, you're going to see one man. The rest are women. And they're their mothers, their sisters, their wives, their girlfriends, their daughters, they're disproportionately people of color and they're trying to to support families outside of prison and inside of prison. Uh, I want like is there anything that you want to hear from your dad? That I want to hear? Yeah. For me personally, you mean? Yeah. Um, I, no, there, I, I have, my, f- my father has apologized to me numerous times. We've, we've talked about that all, you know, we've like, we can't change it. I guess that's the whole point is we can't change it. And, um, and I know that and he knows that. And so as many times as I've gotten angry or wanted him um, to say something else or something more. I mean, that's kind of where we always go back to. If he could change it, he would. If I could change it, I would. Um, Unfortunately, we can't. When George tried to prepare for the collapse of society, for the worst possible scenario, his overreaction led to catastrophe. What we have seen from the events of the Norco bank robbery and what happened afterwards shows that there is a risk in preparing for the extreme, in both survivalist thinking and in the way police are trained. If all you see are potential threats, potential crises all around you, you risk overreacting to danger, sometimes even harming the people you are meant to protect. The whole planet itself was to roll in and around. I didn't have enough. I just got overcautious. is written and produced by me, Antonia Cerejido, and by Sofia Paliza Carr. The show is a production of LA Studios in collaboration with Futuro Studios. 
Leo G is the executive producer for LAS Studios. Marlon Bishop is the executive producer for Futura Studios. Audrey Quinn is our editor. Joaquin Kotler is our associate producer. Juan Dio Ramirez is our production assistant. Maria Alexa Cavanaugh is our intern. Fact-checking by Amy Tardif. Engineering by Stephanie LeBeau. Original music by Zach Robinson. Special thanks to Dr. Casey Kelly, Kurt Rothschiller, Dr. Michael Leo Owens, Maggie Freeling, and Dr. Pete Kraska. Also, stay tuned in the next couple weeks. We will have a couple of bonus episodes that will take a deeper dive into the history of survivalism and the militarization of the police. This podcast is based on the book Norco 80 by Peter Houlihan. Our website is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team at Elias Studios created our branding. Special thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. If you want to hear more Norco 80, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, the iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.